Welcome to the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm the Vice President for Foreign and Defense Policy Studies here, and I'm most pleased to, to welcome you to an event that we are co-hosting with the Federalist Society uh, on dictating norms, who decides what is right for the world, and uh, to inaugurate our shared uh, new project, uh, Global Governance Watch. I'm going to turn the microphone over to, uh, to my friend and colleague, uh, Leonard Leo, the Executive Vice President of the Federalist Society, to say a few words, and then I'm going to come back to you for just a moment. But, Leonard, if you would come up here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Danny Pletka. Good afternoon, everyone. It is a tremendous privilege uh, for the Federalist Society to be partnering uh, with the American Enterprise Institute uh, in this launch of uh, Global Governance Watch. Uh, it has been a tremendous pleasure working with uh, Danny Pletka, David Payton, and the AEI staff uh, in uh, reaching this important um, development. And uh, it is especially um, a privilege to have... Um, uh, Ambassador Bolton uh, supporting uh, this effort uh, in such a wonderful way. Uh, as many of you are, I'm sure, aware, uh, sovereignty and self-determination have been uh, essential elements of our constitutional republic since its founding. And yet, uh, more than ever before, international law and policy uh, are placing enormous pressures uh, on our governing institutions. Courts, with increasing frequency, are being asked uh, to look to and to adopt foreign and international sources of law uh, in interpreting our Constitution uh, and other uh, important uh, uh, legal instruments. And uh, we can all understand how when an international body uh, adopts various resolutions uh, by wide margins, how uh, members of the executive branch or the legislative branch um, may well be pressured uh, to uh, to adopt uh, those international norms in developing their own uh, domestic legal and regulatory policy. In fact, uh, in, in my own view, international law uh, uh, today is what constitutional law was uh, 30 years ago or so. It's the empty vessel uh, into which um, the left and other various groups put their ideas and objectives uh, in order to affect change, change that might not otherwise occur through the normal democratic process. And so we have um, uh, this um, partnership between AEI and the Federalist Society in launching uh, uh, Global Governance Watch, which um, uh, puts a spotlight on the institutions and the civil society groups that drive the development of this uh, international uh, law and public policy. Uh, Global Governance Watch, as uh, Daniel Pletka will, I'm sure, uh, discuss in greater detail, is a build-out or an outgrowth of uh, an earlier website called uh, NGO Watch. Uh, NGO Watch, as some of you may remember, focused an awful lot on, on particular civil society groups and NGOs that were uh, involved in the international law and uh, policy process. And uh, at the end of the day, the Federalist Society and AEI thought that um, uh, we need to do more than just focus on, on particular targeted NGOs. We needed to look at the broader uh, global, gov global governance network and the institutions that were involved, the, the broader global governance movement, international organizations, uh, instruments under which they operate, and the groups which uh, regularly um, peddled their wares before those international organizations. 
And so uh, I think that you will find, I hope you will find, uh, that uh, this newly launched website will be uh, a, a much more uh, relevant and valuable resource uh, and one that will help to not only inform the citizenry but broaden public debate about the role that international law and policy should have uh, within our own country. And with that, I will turn the program back over to Ms. Plecka. Thank you, Leonard. It really has been a huge pleasure for those of us at AEI to work with, uh, to work with the Federalist Society on this project now for, for some years. Uh, they bring fresh ideas, a wonderful team of both volunteers and staff. Uh, Leonard Leo, of course, who's been at the forefront of this. Jim Kelly, who is uh, newer to the Federalist Society, but has been uh, at absolute uh, font of, of wisdom and work on, uh, on this. Alyssa LaJohan, um, whose name I hope I've pronounced properly. Since she got married, I've been entirely confused. Uh, but uh, Alyssa as well and their, entire, and their entire staff on our side, Mauro De Lorenzo and David Payton, who have done so much work on this. I, I think when we started uh, NGO Watch and we, we held uh, the inaugural conference, one of the, thi one of the, uh, one of the things that I mentioned was uh, a quote from then Secretary General um, of the United Nations, Kofi Annan, and uh, addressing a, a conference in South Africa he had an audience full of, uh, of NGOs, and he said to them, you are, are the real people. And our response is, no, we are the real people. We are the voter, and we have uh, a government that is accountable. NGOs are not accountable. NGOs are not transparent. NGOs are not elected, and in fact, National governments, state governments, parliaments, your council, your mayor, these are the folks to whom, uh, from whom we can demand accountability. And it was that, uh, it was that idea that prompted uh, our effort to uh, more closely scrutinize the activities of non-governmental organizations and what they were doing. This really, for us, is an effort to expand that. I think what you see now, particularly in the course of the presidential race, is you see a, a growing emphasis on not doing, uh, not doing what, what this administration has done, not being unilateral, but being multilateral and all that that embraces. And a lot of what that means is, in fact, ceding our governing authority and our sovereignty to international organizations because, after all, they, are, uh, they must represent what is the norm. They must represent what is the international right. And, and in, in some instances, of course, that will, that will absolutely be the case. Uh, in others, however, it won't. And in all cases, what we have the right to demand as citizens and as taxpayers is uh, accountability. This effort, Global Governance Watch, is, is to really shine, as, as I think Leonard said very clearly, to shine a light onto what these organizations do on an international level, not just vis-a-vis -vis, uh, international law, not just on foreign policy or defense policy questions, but also on corporate governance questions, whether it's through organizations like the WTO, but even more specifically through the United Nations and its specialized, uh, and its specialized organizations to look at how they start to impact things like corporate social responsibility, um, environmental regulations. Uh, these are things that demand that we pay close attention, and I hope that this website will be a step in that direction. We welcome any suggestions and input and, uh, and, uh, and help from, uh, from friends and critics alike. 
to lead this uh, to lead off our discussion today, I'm really pleased that uh, Ambassador John Bolton was willing to join us. Uh, I think his credentials are probably very well known to everybody here. But for AEI, he really, even before I joined AEI, was at the forefront of our work on sovereignty, and I think brings uh, a very uh, uh, acute wisdom and obviously experience to this question. John is, as I said, a senior fellow at AEI, but of course served as the U.S. permanent representative to the United Nations from August 2005 to uh, December 2006. Prior to that, served for four years as the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. John, thank you very much for being willing to, to kick this effort off for us. And let me, without further ado, turn the microphone over to you, Ambassador John Bolton. Well, thank, thank you very much, uh, Leonard and Danny, and uh, thanks to the two of you and all of your colleagues who have been working on getting uh, global governance uh, launch, uh, uh, global governance watch ready for launching. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and welcome to, uh, to all of you to AEI. I particularly uh, want to welcome all of you who are clinging to your guns and religion. Um, we're... Uh, we're at AEI and the Federalist Society. We, we cling to things, too. So you'll be welcome here with your fellow peasants. Uh, we particularly cling to the U.S. Constitution. And that's, that's really where I wanted to, uh, to start off on uh, my brief remarks today. Uh, you know, this issue of global governance, I think, has two uh, broad aspects to it. One is... Uh, uh, organizational or institutional, one, one of it is more uh, substantive. And even the phrase global governance, uh, of course, is relatively new because up until about 10 years or so ago, uh, people instead used the term global government. Uh, but they dropped that term because they found that there's not a lot of enthusiasm for it, at least in the United States. So they've turned to other uh, approaches. And in fact, the organization that over the decades was the strongest proponent in the U.S. of global government changed its name. They used to be called the World Federalist Society. Uh, and, and they attracted, in, in the early days, right after the founding of uh, the United Nations, they actually attracted a fairly broad base of support. I have read, for example, that uh, young Congressman Gerald Ford and young Congressman John F. Kennedy at one point were either uh, card-carrying members of the World Federalist Society or at least said nice things about it. Uh, how times have changed uh, as people have come to appreciate that, uh, uh, that this concept uh, is both uh, unwise and unworkable for the United States. Um, so the World Federalist Society, as I understand it, in the United States no longer exists, and they've morphed into some... Uh, other organizations which, with names that are indistinguishable from uh, product advertisements. Uh, and, in fact, that reflects the, I think, basic political reality in the United States that the world federalists had about as much stroke and were as important in our political debate as the Esperanto Society uh, with its notion of a, uh, of a global language. But still, the, the institutions... Um, uh, of international norming continue, and that really brings me to the substance of the concept of norming itself. 
um, uh, uh, which is which is newer than most people think. Uh, for example, uh, doing a little hasty research uh, before today's meeting, uh, I looked up in uh, the AEI Black Black's Law Dictionary the term use cogents. Now, AEI is a traditional institution. I must say the most recent edition of Black's Law Dictionary we have is 1933. <laughs> Use cogents isn't even in it. Isn't even in it. Uh, I wish I had looked at mine at home, which is a mere 10 or 12 years old, uh, to see if it made it. Th this is something, this idea of compelling law or peremptory norms, uh, even though enshrined in the Vienna Convention on Conventions itself is a relatively uh, new development. And I might say before we go too much further, uh, I think most of you probably know the United States has not ratified the Vienna Convention on Conventions and therefore uh, is not bound by it in any event. But the idea uh, behind use cogens and in fact behind much of the growth of uh, customary international law in recent years uh, represents a fundamental change uh, from what scholars and statesmen understood customary international law to be in decades past. Uh, customary international law, or as I prefer to call it, customary international custom, uh, is really uh, the uh, representation of state practice. Uh, state practice, which historically was something that evolved over uh, decades. Uh, and that reflected a common sense uh, appreciation of uh, the powers involved as to what uh, norms ought to be to govern uh, their behavior. Uh, it is the, the sort of, uh, uh, of evolution that uh, I think we can we, we accept and live with uh, if, in fact, it were left to continue to be customary as described by state practice. But what has actually happened in the past several decades uh, is that customary international law and the function of norming uh, has become uh, the captive of the international law professoriate, a dangerously underworked group of people who spend their lives developing new customary international law that uh, doesn't derive from decades or centuries of state practice but comes from their own political agenda. Uh, and indeed, the whole idea of use cogens has expanded from the notion that uh, two states cannot, by a bilateral treaty, legitimize genocide or the slave trade. Uh, we now find the world planted thick with use cogens, uh, most of which uh, happen to be contrary to any given American foreign policy on any given day, but which uh, reflect nothing more than the received wisdom of a fairly limited uh, and highly ideological, ideologically compatible uh, group of people. Uh, if uh, one were prepared, if this professoriate were prepared to argue that customary international law, as they understand it, uh, does derive from the natural law tradition, uh, and that, in fact, since we know where the natural law tradition derives from, it derives from God, uh, then I would be prepared to grant uh, some additional legitimacy to their line of argument. I mean, after all, if it's God's law, uh, even if being explained by professors, uh, it has a certain amount of force to it. 
Uh, I doubt, however, that there are any members of the International Law Professoriate, or at least not very many of them, who believe in God, let, let alone are prepared to argue that international law, as it's evolved over the centuries from nat natural law tradition, in fact, represents something from the heavens. Uh, instead, it is a, a creation of their own overactive intellect, uh, and, and intended to advance uh, an agenda uh, not uh, compatible with, in my judgment, by and large, American interests. Uh, it goes without saying that the Senate of the United States, which happens to be the uh, legislative body in our Constitution that deals with, uh, with international treaties, uh, has never taken a vote on uh, uh, customary international law as a general proposition or on use cogens or on what use cogens means or, in fact, much of anything else uh, related to this. Now, people have argued that customary international law has evolved over the centuries much like the common law did in uh, England and that, therefore, we shouldn't be concerned about uh, the growth or the authoritativeness of customary international law because, after all, look at the important role that common law played in the development of our own legal system. I think the analogy is completely uh, uh, inapposite. Uh, and in any event, the role of customary international law, uh, cust uh, uh, sorry, of, of uh, common law, particularly in its constitutional dimension, uh, took place at a time when uh, there was no uh, functioning democratic uh, uh, governance system in uh, the United Kingdom. That was evolving in the same way that uh, common law was evolving to put the king uh, and his agents under the same rule of law that everybody else uh, had to live under. So that when asked today why we need uh, this kind of uh, common law system developing, uh, I would say the need for it, at least with respect to countries with systems of representative government, is considerably less. We have the ability, uh, acting through uh, our representatives, to decide what's going to govern us, and we don't need a separate natural law system uh, somehow to put constraints on us. And I think that really is a very uh, fundamental point, because uh, the... Uh, notion that uh, governments themselves can't decide what they want to be bound by uh, is a fundamentally anti-democratic precept. Uh, and it arises in uh, a variety of different ways. For example, when the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines was, uh, was signed in the late 1990s, uh, the United States did not become a party to it, and I doubt ever will become a party to it. Yet that didn't stop the proponents of the Ottawa Convention from saying, well, 130, 140 countries have signed it. That is evidence of state practice like that. And indeed, landmines are very terrible. So the Ottawa Convention, uh, as demonstrated in as a customary international law precept, rises to the level of use cogens. Uh, and therefore, the United States is in violation of international law because it still has landmines, even though we expressly declined to take part in uh, the convention. This is the kind of logic uh, that I think uh, that we've seen develop more and more and which which to me represents a fundamental uh, transformation of customary international law and an assault on democratic theory. 
There are many other ways that this evolves uh, as well, typically uh, utilizing agencies or forums in the UN system. And as I think Leonard said, uh, much of the development of norming in these bodies uh, comes as a result, at least on the American side, of people in our political system who are dissatisfied with the political outcome that they've achieved at the state or the federal level and who have determined basically to take their arguments into the broader international context, joined by like-minded people from many other countries, especially from our friends in Europe, uh, who see the norming process as a way to constrain uh, the United States. Uh, and here is where our Constitution is a particular obstacle of a, if I may say so, a friend of mine who's a professor of international law told me the story some years ago of being at a convention uh, uh, in an American city where uh, an American, uh, another American professor of international law said the problem with getting really effective global norming is the Americans and their attachment to their constitution because they're so stuck on it that they won't consider these broader norming possibilities. I wish I'd been there. That's all I can say. I wish I'd been there. But let me give you some specific examples of how this has played out in recent years. Uh, one of the examples, of course, is the issue of abortion. It's a very controversial issue in our society. Uh, we're arguing it out in practically every uh, federal election that there is. Uh, we're seeing it argued uh, even, as the Washington Post points out, in the Democratic primary in Pennsylvania coming up next week. People feel strongly about the subject, uh, and, and the rules have changed, and I think will continue to change. But the point is, we're having a debate in our system of constitutional democracy on what we think about abortion. In the meantime, in the international sphere, every time there's a document that comes up, whether it's on the environment or trade or the occupied territories in the Middle East, somehow the subject of reproductive health finds its way into it. And we're into an incredibly, at least for me, an incredibly arcane discussion about verbal formulations uh, that are really about abortion. Uh, they may sound like they're about uh, equality of the sexes, or they may sound like they're about reproductive health, but I'll guarantee you if you dig down into the archaeology of the various phrases that are being used, they're fundamentally about whether you want to legitimize abortion. Now, as I say, I'm not here to argue one side of the abortion debate or another, but I do think uh, that endless discussions in UN institutions about uh, reproductive health in the Israeli-occupied territories is not really a very positive way to spend our time, uh, either with respect to the Middle East uh, or with respect to the abortion debate. The second issue where this comes up uh, very frequently is the death penalty. Uh, now, once again, in, in the United States, we have a vigorous, active, democratic debate about the death penalty at the federal and the state level. And I'm not here to argue one side or the other of that position. But I am here to argue that uh, in our system, uh, we'll decide whether we have the death penalty or not. Uh, and the constant repetitious adoption of resolutions, first in the UN Human Rights Commission, uh, now in its uh, inadequate replacement, uh, isn't, uh, I think, a legitimate uh, exercise of, uh, of uh, time and attention in the UN system. It was a very revealing 
uh, uh, example of this early in uh, Ban Ki-moon's tenure where uh, asked about the application of the death penalty, he said, uh, obviously naively, well, that's a, mem- a matter for the member governments to take up. And I think he said it because as a former foreign minister of South Korea, he's well aware that South Korea has the death penalty. The UN bureaucracy reacted with horror at such a statement because, after all, the UN has passed on this question many times and has said that the death penalty is a no-no. So he retreated and acknowledged that, indeed, that was the position of the United Nations. Now, I would ask you, uh, even in for like the General Assembly or the Human Rights Commission or any other forum where there's no veto, how anybody realistically can believe that the United Nations can have a position on an issue like that when we're debating it in a democracy. Uh, If you think that the votes of uh, the majorities that made up the anti-death penalty um, resolutions uh, somehow have more legitimacy internationally or in this country than our own democratic system, I'd like, I would welcome you standing up and saying that. And I would ask further what it is that, uh, that, uh, that makes anybody think that this, uh, this use of the UN system for this purpose is really going to have any uh, global norming effect other than by the ceaseless repetition that finally uh, wears people down. I, I suggest to you that Global Governance Watch is not going to be worn down even if the Human Rights Council passes another resolution that says it doesn't like the death penalty. The third example Uh, deals with gun control. And we've seen just in the uh, life of this administration a number of efforts by American uh, advocates of gun control to use the existence of an international problem, illicit trafficking in a variety of weapons, to try and adopt a gun control uh, agenda uh, through the UN. And the theory uh, basically is that if they could get some kind of international convention on gun control adopted, that the Senate would ratify it, and then the debate would be over. Uh, and it, it came up in the context of what are called a number of conferences on small arms and light weapons around the world in conflict zones. Let me say, that starts the debate off already in a loaded fashion, because small arms and light weapons, by definition, included everything from a 45 caliber revolver to crew-served mortars. Uh, I'm a strong believer in the Second Amendment, but I think that even that doesn't preclude the government from banning the use of crew served mortars in your backyard. But but by lumping, <laughs> when you lump it all together, you know, mortar fire, 45 uh, uh, caliber uh, revolver practice, it all, it all sort of looks the same. I, I thought that this was a... Uh, mistake when I first uh, came across this issue in 2001 when I was in charge of arms control, which is how I got into the small arms and light weapons business. And I I volunteered, uh, indeed I was eager to go to New York to give the uh, U.S. address at the opening session of the U.N. Conference on Small Arms and Light Weapons. And I said that uh, while we certainly had a legitimate national interest in illicit trafficking and in in various kinds of weapons, particularly in the conflict zones where they could uh, be used against American deployed forces, uh, that I didn't think that the conference should really spend its time on issues that were within the domestic purview of the member governments. And I said, particularly in the case of the United States, we have a provision of the Constitution, which Attorney General John Ashcroft had recently opined on, was a matter of individual right uh, and was not something uh, 
that was a collective right, as many had advocated, and that therefore I made the following revolutionary statement in the General Assembly. We would not support any declaration or international convention which, if adopted as positive law in the United States, would be unconstitutional. Well, I mean, you would have thought that I had said something really objectionable, and indeed I had, because that uh, undercut the fundamental uh, political agenda of those who thought that that was precisely the purpose of this conference, uh, to adopt statements or to lead to a convention that would ultimately constrain the United States uh, in its domestic law. Now, again, this is a, an issue on which reasonable people can disagree. Uh, we'll see soon whether the Supreme Court agrees with that attorney general opinion from seven years ago. Uh, but one has to wonder why it is that people think international norming on this issue uh, is somehow preferable to the playing out of our democratic system. And this, to me, is where you get really to the nub of what sovereignty is all about. Sovereignty is not some abstract concept to Americans. It's not something held by a distant government. It's not something uh, that actually we view as deriving from uh, kings anymore. For us in this country, we are sovereign. We govern ourselves. We determine what our government will do. So when you talk about breaking sovereignty down or sharing sovereignty with somebody else or the limits of sovereignty, you're saying to us that we don't know how to govern ourselves effectively and that a little less self-government would be good for us. Well, I fundamentally disagree. Uh, I think the vast majority of American citizens disagree. I'd love to have a debate in this political campaign. I'd love to have a debate in this political campaign about global governance and shared sovereignty. Uh, I don't know whether we will or not, but I think this joint uh, AEI Federalist Society project will go a long way toward uh, encouraging that debate. Thank you very much. Um, John has agreed to take a couple of questions before he has to take off, so uh, let me o open the floor. If everybody would just be kind enough. Um, David, do we have a microphone here? Uh, if, uh, to wait, identify yourself, please. Go ahead. Let's go ahead and start. I'll repeat the question if people can't hear it. Go ahead. Yes, sir. You. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, um, Cuba has had a long-standing, very sophisticated biotechnology program. There were defective reports that... Um, they may have been working on biological weapons, and of course, the defense against those which is permitted is the same process to create the, the weapons or the diseases themselves. So why would this be seen as controversial within the State Department or any intelligence service of the United States? Uh. Well, having, having generated a, this is a question about Cuba and its BW research. I said, Brett uh, Schaefer from the Heritage Foundation is here. Welcome. I said at Heritage in 2003 that Cuba had a, uh, a, a research and development uh, program uh, uh, in, in BW uh, capabilities and that uh, the Cubans had a lot of uh, contacts with other rogue states that we feared had more advanced programs. Uh, to Senator Dodd, Castro's chief defender in the Senate, this became a, 
matter of grave uh, concern during my confirmation battle. Uh, all I can say is I don't really understand why uh, it was so controversial since the Assistant Secretary of the Bureau of Intelligence and Research had used exactly the same sentence that I used in my heritage speech and testimony on the Hill a month before, uh, and nobody had picked that up. So this is a, uh, th this is a kind of subject that uh, I'd love to discuss further, but, but maybe another time. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm, my name is Roger Trigg from the University of Oxford in England. Um, I would uh, accept everything you say when it applies to democracies, but when we look at a country like Zimbabwe, it's quite tempting to think if only we could apply some kind of internationally accepted norms on what's going on there. So how would you approach that kind of situation? Well, let, let, me, let me take Zimbabwe or Burma as, as good examples. Uh, one, one might uh, uh, take up the question of the situation in Zimbabwe or Burma in the UN uh, Human Rights Decision-Making Body, the UN Human Rights Council. This would be an essentially futile task. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, the commission and, and now its latter-day descendant, the council, spend most of their time protecting the grossest abusers of human rights from real scrutiny. Uh, and when they're not occupied in that important task, attacking Israel or the United States. Uh, uh, and that's just not my opinion. I'm, I'm uh, either profoundly happy or profoundly concerned that my view that the Human Rights Council is as bad or worse than its predecessor is shared by the New York Times and the Washington Post. Okay. This is the last question. Thank you, Ambassador Bolton. My name is Professor Gerarda Cullifer, and I'm a Roman Catholic professor of law at American University, so I am God-fearing. And my question goes to strategy in terms of um, communicating to my students who are all international LLM candidates. They're all international lawyers. And uh, we were discussing the Medellin case, which came out about a month ago. Fundamentally, my students don't except the separation of powers, which is what protects our country from the imposition of international customary law on us. How do you encourage us to engage in debate with, with young and even old international lawyers who fundamentally do not accept our, our construct of government? How do, we, how do we communicate with people who fundamentally don't accept the, the structure of our country? Well, let, me, let me ask that a different way. How do they communicate with us? You know, I, I know that, but, but, but my, point, I, my point is that uh, when you get into one of these conversations uh, about uh, our differences with other countries and, and the broader subject of American exceptionalism, I'm not, we're not advocating that they have to adopt our practices. Uh, if they don't want to have a separation of executive from uh, judicial power, if they don't uh, have a division of power between national and subdivision levels, if they don't want to put in place all the protections we have uh, that are there, not because they're aesthetically pleasing, but because we, we believe fundamentally they help protect our basic liberties, they don't want to do any of that, that's fine. That's fine. But, but it's not, that doesn't give them license to come after us. And, and, I, and, and the argument that somehow you know, Texas has responsibilities that are different from the federal government, that that's a sneaky way around international obligations is just factually incorrect and reverses the logic uh, of why the uh, division between national and, and state power exists. Uh, 
you know, I'm not sure there is an answer to your question other than continually trying to explain why we do things the way we do uh, and and uh, in hopes that others will understand it. But their lack of understanding of what we do is not a reason for us not to do it, I think. Thank you all very much. I know we're running a little bit late, but uh, I think it was worth it to take the extra time to hear from John. Um, I'm going to uh, invite David and Alyssa up to the uh, podium, and what they're going to do is just very quickly um, lay out for you the new website, which I think is uh, is a piece of marvelous work, and I hope will uh, I, I hope will be used by all present and and many others as well. So over to you two for a, for a quick review. Thank you both. Thank you, Danny. Thanks to Ambassador Bolton for his participation in the event today. Uh, we'd like to take a minute or two to present to you the website that we've been working on for the past several months, um, which we hope will be a part of this Global Governance Watch project. Um, Global Governance Watch, as previously stated, follows on the heels of a previous and, and smaller AEI Federalist Society project called NGO Watch, uh, the purpose of which was to monitor issues of transparency and accountability in NGOs and a few other international organizations. Global Governance Watch builds on the work of NGO Watch by expanding the, go- the, the scope of the project um, to the United Nations, to international financial institutions, and other international regulators that had contributed to the growing Global Governance Watch movement. Uh, the GGW mission statement is to promote transparency, accountability, and national sovereignty. We hope that this website and future GGW events will provide a useful forum for discussing these issues. A GGW, or Global Governance Watch, divides its work into four content areas, or pillars as we call them. These pillars seek to divide, divide global governance into manageable parts that can be digested by the public. The four pillars are development, national security, human security, and global regulation. Now, the first pillar, which I'll describe, development, looks at international organizations that conduct development work, the strategies they employ, their efficacy or lack thereof, and the agendas that they promote. A few of the organizations that we'll be looking at include the UNDP, the Millennium Development Goals, the World Bank, and NGOs. The second pillar that we'll be looking at uh, is called national security, which looks at international organizations that have become increasingly involved in national defense policy. The focus areas under this pillar include arms control, non-proliferation, and peacekeeping. I'll now turn the mic over to Alyssa, who will describe the remaining two pillar areas. Sure. Um, Thank you, David. Um, The third pillar we're looking at is human security. This looks at the changing definition um, of human security from simply one of freedom from fear to also one that includes freedom from want and then what that means for national sovereignty. Some of the focus areas we're looking at include the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, um, and UN Enforcement. Um, The fourth pillar is global regulation, and this looks at international networks that are being used to globally regulate economic and social affairs and the effects this has on on national sovereignty. Some of our focus areas are climate change regulation, health and intellectual property, and corporate social responsibility. I want to click through one of the pillars for you real quickly just so you can see how to navigate around. Um, You can get to any of the pillars from the homepage when you click on it. It brings you to a brief overview of the pillar. You can then move on to the focus areas. There are several um, different focus areas that you can choose from. Anything you want to learn more about, click on one for you. And then this goes into some foundational content of um, what that issue looks at. All of these, the 
pillar content are, have links within them. So if there's something you find more interesting and want to learn more about it, you can just keep clicking through. We also have um, two of the other main features of the website include our recent development sections and then also our resources section. The recent developments um, frame current events within the paradigm of global governance. Um, and as the ideas um, and the processes of global governance um, develop, we'll update the foundational content. So it's, it's going to be a very current resource. Um, the second is our resources section. This, the foundational content of the pillars and also the recent developments, like I said, linked to many original source documents, analyses, organizational websites, and articles, and all of these are compiled in this section. This is sort of a library of sorts, and um, the resources section is fully searchable by author, title, category, and publication date, making it a very valuable resource. If you'd like to personalize your GGW viewing experience, uh, you can set up a MyGGW account, uh, which allows you to subscribe to our biweekly mailing, which will be coming out. Um, and also, if you'd like to specify the particular pillar areas that you're interested in, uh, our mailings will correspond to those particular areas, and you can receive those uh, to your email. And then we, David and I, appreciate any feedback or comments that um, you have as you're going through the website. You can feel free to contact us. We'll be around after the panel discussion, which, gonna, which is going to start in just a minute. Um, and then also our contact information is on the Global Governance Watch information sheet that you can find in your blue folders. So thank you very much. Thank you. I think we're going to move to our next panel. If I can invite our panelists up to the podium. Alyssa and David, thank you very much for the presentation. And uh, off we go. Thank you very much. My name is Jim Kelly. I'm the Director of International Affairs for the Federalist Society. And again, I'd like to thank uh, Alyssa Luckjohn and uh, David Payton for the excellent work that they, they've been doing in creating Global Governance Watch. They did a terrific job, and I, I know it will be a useful resource. Uh, in your blue packet are the bi uh, biographies of the three panelists. Uh, if you please make reference to that, I would appreciate it. Uh, I will quickly go through them in the interest of uh, making sure you know who is uh, going to be speaking today. Uh, we have uh, with us first on the far end, Honorable Ronald A. Cass. He's the chairman of the Center for the Rule of Law and the president of Cass and Associates. He serves as an international arbiter in NAFTA, ICSID, UNCITRAL, and AAA cases. He served under President Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush as vice chairman and commissioner of the International Trade Commission. Uh, Mr. De Cass is Dean Emeritus of the Boston University School of Law and was the Melville Madison Bigelow Professor of Law from 1995 to 2004. And he's chairman, I'm proud to say, of our Federalist Society Practice Group on International Law and National Security. And you can read about his publications in his biography. Next we have Claudia Reset. Claudia is a journalist in residence at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. She writes on international affairs. Ms. Rosette regularly writes for publications such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the American Spectator, and the Weekly Standard. Her work on exposing the United Nations Oil for Food scandal earned her the 2005 Eric Brindell Award and the Mightier Penn Award. Uh, Ms. Rosette has served as a member of the Wall Street Journal's editorial board in New York uh, from 1997 to 2002 and was a bureau chief in the journal's Moscow Bureau from 1993 to 1996. 
We have with us also Ambassador Joseph Reese. He is a special representative for social issues in the International Organizations Bureau at the Department of State. From January 2001 until 2002, he served as counsel to the Committee on International Relations of the House, U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, he served as general counsel for the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service from 1991 until 1993 and as chief justice of the High Court of American Samoa between 1986 and 1991. We have asked these three panelists to speak on the issue of global governance, and we have asked them to speak in the context of our, four, our three of our four pillar areas, what I would like to do is uh, read the statements uh, uh, that we have presented to them. Uh, this was to provide context for the remarks. Uh, they will not be necessarily speaking directly to or answering the questions raised in what we provided to them. Uh, hopefully uh, they will amplify it uh, with their terrific experiences in the area of global governance. Uh, I'm going to start with Ambassador Reese, who's going to be discussing generally uh, the issue of human security. We uh, uh, informed Ambassador Reese, uh, historically the realization of civil and human rights has taken place organically within sovereign nation states. While progress is slow, there is much that is gained from allowing democratic processes to play out uh, in terms of legislative, judicial, and executive action. However, in recent years, human rights activists have been aggressively promoting economic and social human rights that are theoretical in nature and not clearly established in national or international law. These include such rights as the right to health, the right to work, the right to water, the right to housing, and the right to education. To aggravate the situation in two recent cases as partial justifications for its decisions, the Supreme Court of the United States cited decisions of the European Court of Human Rights. Two UN organizations are formally involved in promoting human rights, the Geneva-based UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the Paris-based United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. Yet the United States has no effective control over the programs of the work of these two organizations, much of which takes place outside the context of the infrequent meetings of their member states. Ambassador Reese, what, if anything, can the United States Department of State and Congress do to prevent the unaccountable expansion of the U.N. Secretariat's activities in the area of economic and social human rights? Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Um, I had prepared a, a few remarks, and, of course, one of the problems you always have uh, at a multi-speaker event is that you will have prepared things to say that someone will say before you. Um, so I wasn't too disturbed when Ambassador Bolton began by talking about the similarities between some of the issues involved in uh, the, the growth of international law and uh, similar issues in the growth of uh, or distortion of American constitutional law. Um, I figured I could work around that. Um, the main point I was going to make after I made that point was that international organizations are very good, particularly in the social and human rights area, in recognizing uh, the, whether or not we agree with the results that they reach sometimes, and we often don't, uh, it's fundamentally good that there exist multilateral organizations that recognize that fundamental human rights don't come from governments. Uh, what we need to do is get them to take the next step and get them to recognize that those rights also don't come from international organizations. Uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights speaks of uh, natural uh, human rights that are inherent in, in human personality. And I think uh, our own uh, Declaration of Independence said it even better 
which is that we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Uh, but Ambassador Bolton covered that, too. Uh, I figured he'd at least leave me uh, the abortion issue uh, <laughs> uh, as the particular bailiwick of, of the social and uh, uh, human rights area. Um, uh, so I'm going to work around as best I can, and I'm afraid all that's left are the war stories. Uh, I had the privilege of being, uh, uh, I have been, as, as, as uh, Jim said, I've been a uh, special representative for social issues, which, of course, in the United States, it means you're against gay marriage. Uh, in, uh, in, the United, in the United Nations context, social issues very broad and includes the whole human rights field as well as you know, women's issues, children's issues, a lot of development issues, uh, and uh, and uh, uh, I have uh, uh, been working both to make United Nations, working on behalf of the President and the Secretary of State, uh, to deliver our message, uh, which President Bush calls the Human Dignity Agenda, uh, which is that the United Nations, which doesn't only govern, it's also supposed to do things. It's also ha it has programs, and a lot of our message is to try to get the programmatic. Uh, areas of the United Nations that are that are designed to help vulnerable people to actually go out and help them instead of creating new norms and instead of having workshops or perhaps in addition. Uh, and you know our message is uh, more immunizations, fewer workshops, uh, fewer fewer new norms. Uh, well, uh, for three months in the fall, uh, I got to go to uh, the place where it all uh, hits the road, which is which is uh, the General Assembly. Uh, and uh, I was I was acting representative uh, to the Economic and Social Council, and also therefore to the the committees, the second and third committees, which deal with economic and social issues. And the things that Ambassador Bolton was talking about, you you give notional assent to them, uh, but you you can't really give real assent to them until you get there and you realize that every single day, I don't think there was a day. Uh, in a way, the abortion issue was the easiest because we'd been through it so many times that you could uh, you could look at the language and 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 know that if it said reproductive health services, the United States was going to have to vote against. If it said reproductive health, we could vote for it, but we had to have an explanation of position that reproductive health doesn't include abortion. Uh, and if it said reproductive health care, then it was okay because there was a meeting once where they decided that reproductive health care or a series of meetings didn't include abortion. Uh, so that one, at least, we had a formula on. The problem is that, that the, the, the gold standard in uh, UN social issues discussions is agreed language. And they have so many, so many fora and so many meetings of every forum that it's almost impossible for anything we don't like to miss out on having been agreed language somewhere. Uh, and so constantly when we would say, no, we can't agree to that language, uh, we were told, no, but it's agreed language. It was in 2005 at the, uh, at the World Summit on this. Uh, actually, the 2005 one is simply called the World Summit. It wasn't on anything, uh, but, but there were other World Summits on particular things. Uh, and, and, uh, and so then you'd have to go back to the negotiating history, and sure enough, it was agreed language. And if you said, but, but we shouldn't have agreed to that language, it, it's, it's not right, uh, that was not an argument that, that, uh, uh, that was appreciated. Uh, and on the other hand, it's, it's like American constitutional law in that it's a ratchet. The, the people who are promoting 
uh, new human rights that uh, couldn't get voted in most countries uh, are allowed to, to go beyond the agreed language, and that's seen as progress. They got the agreed language last year. What they need now is just a couple of extra words uh, to really tamp it down. And everyone understands that that's going on. Whereas when the United States says, as we have occasionally said, no, we've thought about it, and we don't like what you're doing with that agreed language from 2005 or 2006, that is, you know, it's not just impolite it's 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 nearly unpardonable um the um we've got allies on all of these issues uh but they're different allies and there are two dramatically different sets of allies on the two the two basic things we try to do what we try to do in the human rights area uh in the un is simple we try to get these institutions, the Human Rights Council, which we don't have much luck with, the Third Committee, uh, uh, which is the social uh, committee of the uh, UN General Assembly, we have a little more luck with. We try to get them to recognize and promote real human rights, you know, the right not to be uh, tortured, the right not to be uh, imprisoned for your political opinions, the right against extrajudicial execution, uh, uh, the right to freedom of religion, freedom of expression. We try to get them to promote those rights and to identify violations of those rights and to at least say bad things uh, about the, the, the governments that are, that are violating those rights. And then we try to get them not to create and promote uh, in the rubric of human rights things that really aren't uh, human rights. That's pretty simple. Well, we have one set of allies on the first question, and we're talking about Burma and Zimbabwe and what happens uh, in, in Darfur and a few other places like that. Uh, and we usually, by the, the skin of our teeth, we can pass country-specific resolutions in the third committee, uh, usually pretty good, tough resolutions calling attention to the problems in these countries. And, and our allies tend to be uh, the European Union. Uh, which in addition to its 27 votes has about uh, 15, 16, 17 other countries uh, that are candidate countries or that in other ways associate themselves. So they come with a good chunk of votes, and they're good on the country-specific resolutions. Um, on other issues, the fighting of, of new non-human rights, of the tendency to turn every last one of our political opinions or of their political opinions into human rights, uh, we have a different set of allies. Uh, on, on those issues, uh, we find that, that some Latin American countries, some African countries, uh, some Islamic countries, generally, although abortion is not the only one of these issues, it's the same countries where you would find that, 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 that the country still has laws protecting its unborn children. Those are the same countries on which you can get, you know, you can get them on your side against creating new human rights. Um, the problem is that often... Our allies on each set of issues, while they care about those issues and they're genuinely on our side, they don't care as much about those issues as they do about something else, about process, about precedent, this agreed language issue frequently loses us allies, uh, about some other uh, fish they've got to fry or they're going to need the other side. So we haven't always been able to build the coalitions. Occasionally it happens. Uh, there was the cloning resolution uh, in, uh, in 2004 and 2005 where 
part of the advantage was it wasn't originally proposed by us. It was proposed by Costa Rica, and it was to ban all human cloning, to recommend that all governments ban all human cloning. Uh, well, some European countries disagreed, and they, they proposed a counterproposal that would ban uh, reproductive cloning, but not what they called research cloning. And the, 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 what it boiled down to is it would be okay to clone as long as you, rec as long as you killed uh, the resulting entity uh, a few weeks or months later. Well, that was unacceptable to us, and it was unacceptable to much of the Islamic world and many of the African countries and many of the uh, Latin American countries. So eventually we got uh, uh, about a two-to-one vote with a lot of abstentions uh, in favor of that anti-cloning resolution. But we have not always been able to replicate uh, that uh, result. Similarly, on the human rights uh, issues, uh, we did pass resolutions in the fall uh, condemning human rights violations in Iran, in Belarus, um, in Burma, and in North Korea. But we didn't even try Zimbabwe, Sudan, or Cuba uh, because the vote count, well, for a number of reasons. You can't do too many, but one of the concerns was that the votes might have been different on those. Um, the, uh, I just want to close with one uh, observation going back to the, the question of the U.S. Constitution. The reason we do believe that it's, it's good for the United Nations to concern itself with genuine human rights questions is the same reason we have a Constitution. If we were going to be a pure democracy, we wouldn't need a Constitution. It's that we recognize, and we did so democratically when we adopted the Constitution, that there ought to be some limits on what even democracy can do at the moment. Uh, uh, at the same time, uh, human rights law uh, or international human rights law, human rights norms recognize that there are some things, uh, again, which inhere in our nature as human beings and which governments uh, don't have the right uh, to take away from us. That's good. Uh, but as some of us said when we were considering the, uh, uh, the Rome Statute, uh, of the International Criminal Court, we'll agree to it if you can come up with a court that can definitely try Paul Pot and definitely can't try Jesse Helms. Uh, somehow, the United Nations uh, often seems on the verge of coming up with the opposite. Uh, and, and we've got our work cut out for us. Uh, I thank you for listening. Thank you, Joseph. What we're going to do is hear from each of the panelists, and then we'll come back and take your questions after all three have spoken. Uh, I'm going to next ask our panelist, Ron Cass, uh, the statement that he was given uh, for the context of his remarks. Over the past few years, the United Nations has sought to serve as the lead organization for addressing such issues as climate change, migration, health, education, the eradication of extreme poverty, and human rights. In support of these efforts, the UN has created a matrix of regional and international networks consisting of non-governmental organizations, academics, transnational businesses, and foundations. These networks include research networks, policy networks, standard-setting networks, legislative networks, enforcement networks, and funding networks. Yet the UN member states have little, if any, input regarding the nature and agendas of the participants in these networks. 
Ron, what, if anything, can the United States Department of State and Congress do either to prevent the dilution of the U.N. as purely a member state organization or, if partnerships are inevitable, to increase the transparency and accountability of the U.N.'s network partners? Thanks. Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, having heard uh, all the cell phones going off uh, during a couple of the uh, prior uh, speakers, I have to start with one a brief anecdote. Uh, I, I was uh, about a month ago in uh, a, a steam room, and uh, while there, a, a cell phone went off, and one of the fellows in the steam room picked it up and uh, answered the phone, where are you uh, at the club? And uh, the voice on the other end said, well, Maybe this is a bad time to ask, but uh, at Garden House Furs, uh, there was a, a mink on sale uh, that I won. It's only $5,000. Can I get it? There was a pause. And the fellow said yes. And then the, the voice on the other end said, well, uh, I also went by uh, the Mercedes dealership, uh, European Motors, and I noticed that the S500 I wanted, uh, they have one in just the color I want. It, you know, they, they have it marked down. <clears throat> only $90,000. <clears> Can I get that? There was a longer pause, and the fellow said yes. And then the, 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 the conversation went on. Well, maybe this is really not the right time to ask, but I, I, I also uh, was reading uh, the ads on the Internet and saw an apartment in, in Paris uh, for only uh, $3 million. It, It's right on the Champs-Élysées. It's, you know, it's, it, these come on the market so, so rarely. Um, do you think I could put a bid in on that? And there was a much longer pause, and, and then, yes. Uh, and and the, the conversation closed with, you know, a lot of complimentary remarks and, you know, see you tonight. And the fellow hung up the phone, turned to the rest of the people in the room and said, whose phone is this? <laughs> now, when you deal with the U.N., this is, a, this is a question you have to ask a lot. Because it's very easy to say yes to all sorts of wonderful things when you're not playing uh, with your own money. Um, when, we, when we start uh, with the United States, uh, we start with the proposition at our founding that the base uh, of our Constitution is human individual freedom. And we're going to move from human freedom to certain agreements that constrain our freedom, that give power over to government. We're going to do that voluntarily and we're going to do it democratically, but we're going to do it where it makes sense to us, where we need to make some compromise on our individual freedom so that we can get a greater good. The Constitution does this by looking at the sort of issues that we need government to solve and what level of government we need to solve it at. Uh, there's also a lot of attention to the fact that even after striking those agreements, we have to worry about what individuals are going to do and what groups of individuals are going to do when they don't want something that will serve the common good, when they want something that advances their own particular interests and agenda. And if you go back to the Federalist Papers, you read Hamilton and Federalist 9, Madison, Federalist 10, a writing about the problem of faction, how we're going to resolve that, what level of government is the right level of government to make decisions at. For most sorts of decisions that we need to have made about our lives, we can make it individually. We can make it through the market. We can make it through individual negotiations and dealings. There's another level of decisions we need to make at a local level. And then there are decisions we need to make at a national level. And we've ceded a certain measure of individual freedom to make those decisions 
at a national level. Rarely, there are decisions that have to be made at an international level. Back in the 1850s, a group of countries negotiated the way they would interconnect lines so we could send telegraph messages across national borders. You need to have that. You need to have agreement on that the same way if you're driving uh, from Washington up to Boston, you don't want to be going uh, driving on the left part of the time, on the right part of the time. Um, you know, I, I heard somebody trying to explain uh, the, the way you make these decisions by saying we're going to go from left-hand drive to, to right-hand drive in a certain country, but we're going to do it you know, for a certain part of the population one day, another part of the population. You, you just can't do things that way. You need agreement on certain ground rules. Where we are today with the UN is not getting agreement on the rules of the road, but on what car you ought to be driving, what fuel you ought to be using, what ought to be in that, and who ought to be traveling with you, uh, whether you like it or not. And we've gone from doing that at a level where nations have to agree to now doing it at a level where we have a combination of nations, and as Jim said, not only nations, but cross border organizations, organizations that purport to represent particular interests. Now, there's a certain level at which we want people who are stakeholders. We want people who are interested in international regulation participating. We want the businesses that are being regulated participating. We want the people who are being regulated participating. We want to know the information they have before we strike agreements, even on things where we need international agreement. But the way to do it legitimately is to do it through representative governments, to do it through your government, to have the businesses and the individuals who are affected deal with the government and let the government negotiate the result. Sometimes when you do that, you get results you don't like. It's a messy process. Uh, I was a dean of a law school for 14 years. That drives home to you more than anything else the limits of your power to get people to do what they ought to do. I was dealing with a faculty of people who had lifetime tenure. It's hard to get them to do what you want them to do, no matter what you say. When you deal with sovereign nations, it's hard to get them to do what you want them to do, which is why we negotiate, why we have uh, agreements. Today, we're in the process of subverting agreements that have already been, make, been made and making new rules for agreements we haven't yet struck. Uh, one of the things that was talked about earlier was the World Trade Organization. The World Trade Organization has certain rules that are adopted, and those are negotiated among countries. Among the rules that have been negotiated are rules for trade in goods that have intellectual property embodied in them. So if you are selling a disc that has a movie on it that has a copyright, or you are selling a CD that has a record on it that has a copyright, or you are selling a pharmaceutical that has a patent on it, or a, a product that has a trademark on it, we have rules that are agreed for protecting the intellectual property. And that encourages people to invest in inventing new drugs and creating new movies and doing all the sorts of things we want people to be doing. Well, those rules for protecting intellectual property internationally aren't congenial to people who don't want to protect intellectual property. There are people who want to steal the intellectual property of others and use it for their own goods. Now, some of the people who want to do this 
will be speaking in the name of human health. They want to take pharmaceuticals and not pay patent royalties because they want to give drugs out for free to everybody. They don't think ahead to who creates the next drug, but other people want it because it advances their own particular business agenda or because they simply don't like property rights. Generally, they want to break down the system. Those people have a voice in trying to get their individual governments to renegotiate deals like the trade-related aspects of intellectual property deal for the WTO. When you can't do that, though, what do you do? You try to get some other international organization to adopt a set of principles that contradicts the ones that were negotiated by your government. And we see that going on with the World Health Organization, which has a working group made up of people that are not all uh, representatives of government, that is trying now to undo some of the agreements made elsewhere by governments uh, that deal directly with intellectual property rights. We ought to have an ability as a nation to say, here are the deals we're not going to respect, here are the deals we're going to abide by, and if we have organizations that are starting to break down the ability of sovereign nations to only be bound by things they agree to, we can stop funding those organizations. We can cut back our funding of those organizations. We can vote for restructuring. A lot of the time, we need to be sensitive to the fact that it's good to have attention called to what different international players are doing. Sometimes we have too many decision makers with too many contrary decisions, and we ought to try to get them together to negotiate a single set of rules. Again, I go back to the uh, International Telecommunications Union and its origins. There are times when a single set of rules makes sense. But for those occasions, we ought to have it done in a transparent, accountable way that respects national sovereignty. We ought to make sure that whenever these things are being done, that the person who's answering the cell phone is the one who's going to be paying the bill. Thanks very much, Ron. Uh, and I appreciate that you ended your remarks with the issue of transparency and accountability because that brings us to Claudia's uh, contextual question. Regarding the development pil pillar of Global Governance Watch, Claudia, as has been well documented, as you, as you have well documented, the United Nations has met with much deserved criticism in the management or mismanagement of the UN Office of the Iraq Oil for Food Program. Additionally, in 2005, the World Bank's Department of Institutional Integrity issued a 16-page report that documented systemic fraud and corruption in the pharmaceutical drug procurement practices in the bank's Reproductive and Child Health One project in India. In 2007, the World Bank published a detailed implementation review of the India health sector, a forensic examination undertaken by the World Bank's Department of Institutional Integrity that identified corruption in the administration of loans relating to five health projects in India. In both the case of the UN and World Bank corruption scandals, Paul Volcker was hired to investigate the systemic failings in the Oil for Food and Department of Institutional Integrity programs and make recommendations for improvement. In light of these egregious shortcomings in the administration of humanitarian and development aid, is it realistic to presume 
that the U.N., World Bank, and other supranational development agencies can establish the degree of transparency and accountability necessary to fight corruption within the management of their aid programs and within the governments of their aid recipients. Wow. Okay, where to begin with this? Um, uh, just uh, two quick notes um, on Paul Volcker. Uh, had he actually put more effort into investigating and clarifying the extent of the wrongdoing under oil for food, we might have stopped a great many more things and learned more in time to do something about it and still be doing something now. Case in point, you remember Ben Savan, who ran oil for food, who's been living as a fugitive of you from U.S. law on Cyprus, who left New York quietly, and I suspect on the ticket of the U.N., in the spring of 2005, while the Volcker inquiry was going on, assuring the press that if, any, if there was any problem, uh, we would hear about it. Um, he's now writing in the Armenian Daily Online. You can look him up, uh, opining about the rotation out of the U.N. Special Representative, his buddy Michael Mueller from Cyprus. I find it fascinating that you can have the United Nations, a global institution with all these global aspirations, and yet here's somebody who's been indicted in New York, alleged, uh, accused of wrongdoing by their own investigation, and he's out there with his opinions going online from Cyprus, uh, living a life unfettered as long as he sits on the island. Um, okay, with that, uh, I could come here today and do something I did recently somewhat to my regret. I sat down with a group of people in Washington who wanted to hear about the UN, and I went into a list of scandals because I could sit here and do this for the next week solid. We could go around the clock, and I could list for you uh, sort of various things coming off of oil for food, the peacekeeper rape scandals, the procurement bribery scandals, the cash for Kim, UNDP scandals, uh, the moral bankruptcy, the failures to solve the real crises of the world, the creation of artificial crises. I would class climate change in that category. Uh, the whimsical tendency of Russian officials to corrupt Russian officials to name their offshore front companies after their children. Uh, we could do this and your eyes would start to glaze over and you would start to think this is all really very large and unmanageable and I can't keep track of anything and she's going to spaghetti who can follow and um, anyway nothing really seems to come of it and we're all still here hale and hearty so what's the problem and you would go home thinking oh my my that was a really depressing thing that got said about the UN whatever it all was oil for food was corrupt I remember that and we could do this again and again. So instead, I want to just skip. I'm happy to answer questions on any of the things I've just mentioned, including this tendency to name the front companies after the kids, which is just the beginning of a whole whimsical underworld of U.N. sleaze corruption and moral bankruptcy. And we are talking about the U.N. when we talk about global governance. But let's skip to a more basic point, which is why does this keep happening? And is there actually any way that we can stop it? Um, the answer is that it keeps happening the things you just reeled off, the things I could reel off, the things from my colleagues who cover the UN could reel off. It keeps happening because the, the United Nations is designed for this to happen. And there is actually nothing. To, given the way that the UN is set up, there is nothing that is going to stop it from happening because the UN will morph and adapt to continue. It's what it's designed to do. The basic reason, so the UN is fundamentally unaccountable. 
it doesn't report to anybody. When you began telling your joke about the cell phone, I thought, is that Kofi Annan calling? <laughs> but it, it could be Ban Ki-moon these days with his climate change conferences on Bali. It could be, uh, what's his, a Kemal Dervish at the UN Development Program, which operates around the world, and nobody, even on the governing executive board, gets to see their own audits. Why is it, on a, and there have been endless efforts to make it accountable over the years. UN reform, when Condi Rice said a continuing revolution of reform, I thought, yeah, sort of like um, they've been trying to institute global socialism since whenever. It's this endless. Um, there was something called the Joint Inspections Unit that's been around for decades that's supposed to provide oversight. Uh, in 1994, the U United States feeling that that was not doing the job, set up the Office of Internal Oversight Services. There are external auditors, internal auditors. It doesn't actually, the Oil for Food program was, and I'm quoting the Secretary General spokesman, audited to death. It doesn't actually do the job it can't because the UN doesn't account to anybody. In this country, we have a system of checks and balances where in the end, watch them slugging it out in the primaries right now, politicians love them or hate them, have to account to people who go with their votes to the ballot box. They're also accountable in the courts, if need be. There, these are checks and balances that actually check and balance. At the UN, what you have is a sort of Orwellian replication of the labels, but there's no checking and balancing. Uh, they, are, in fact, do not, in the end, account to voters. They account to this bizarre skewed system in which the U.S., in which money pours in basically from the democratic countries of the world and the majority of the so-called voting decisions are made by countries that don't supply the money, that don't subscribe to the same principles, the governments that don't. When I say countries, please read that to mean, to mean the governments of these countries. And there is actually no place where finally the buck stops. Uh, in fact, I would suggest that if you, if we're actually talking, if we're talking about global, the UN is a seat of global governance. The only conceivable way in which that might lend itself to any system that you would ever want to live under would be if we had already colonized Mars, Neptune, Pluto, and possibly galaxies beyond. Because you need some place you can go to get away from this. You need a place of competition. The essence of good government, of progress, of just about everything that works in the world is competition. And the UN thrust toward deciding sort of what people should do, getting people to sign on to these consensus, that's always the big UN word, consensus treaties, arrangements, regulations, the conferences, the endless things that John Bolton was talking about that emanate from the United Nations is that all authority goes to the sort of amorphous, unaccountable mass. Yeah. Ask, who does the UN answer to? The Secretary General, in theory, answers to the General Assembly. The General Assembly is 192 member states. Who are they accountable to? Who stands up? And There's no there there. Uh, what, what went on under Oil for Food, what went on under Cash for Kim, what goes on endlessly is you point to some specific piece of wrongdoing, and that part of the UN points to another part of the UN. And that points to another one until it's lost in the echo chamber because there is no single jurisdiction that holds the UN to account. It operates across borders, and you can chase down some things done in the U.S. in U.S. courts. Has anybody seen any cases prosecuted out of Nairobi on UN corruption recently, out of Moscow? 
or out of some of the other places where they keep some of their big offices and programs out of Vienna, out of it just doesn't happen. It's virtually impossible. And if it did, you would have to start worrying because not all legal standards, not all legal systems operate to the kind of standard that we expect in a democratic state. Um, basically, what we're talking about is it, it's hard to, given the horrors that attended upon central planning in the last century, it's hard to see how anyone could make it worse. But the UN offers a recipe for actually making that worse. Okay? At least the Soviet central planners were stuck with the Soviet empire. Okay? They, in the end, that's what did them in. This is, this is sort of what the UN keeps moving toward. And if it sounds overwrought to say this, it actually is not. That would be the days I could recite for you of the conferences, the plans, the initiatives in which the metrics are not with us, <laughs> in which things do start to get through. Global warming, the whole climate change obsession would be a very, very good case in point. But you're talking about global central planning in which there's sort of no one to account to. And as this system proceeds, as it becomes more marked, as they gain ground, uh, they still have the resources of wealthy democratic states. Yeah, those have to erode considerably before the UN will start to feel any real pinch. And it no longer draws just on member dues. One of the ways since the Soviet collapse, since Kofi Annan went on his grand uh, campaign to bring the private sector in, public-private partnerships, the Ted Turner billion-dollar gift, the setting up of a special department in the U UN Secretariat to collect private donations, the endless campaigns on almost every front to tap into the global economy, uh, it's become more and more difficult to hold anything to account. You know, as, as the late Representative Henry Hyde said while investigating the system, I, he couldn't even figure out the total size of the UN budget. I was grateful to hear him say that because I'd been trying and I couldn't either. Upwards of $20 billion is the system-wide budget. How much upwards, it's not even clear that parts of the UN itself would know. But... That's the basic, basic problem. There is no accountability. And when you have power of any kind, money, political influence, power without accountability, you have a, you have a recipe for dictatorship. And that's the sort of encroaching shadow here. There was a great economist, many years deceased, uh, Frank Knight, who said, I'm told, said something which I've been trying to track down and I can't find the precise quote. Maybe he just said it in conversation at the University of Chicago Quadrangle Club. But, but it rings very true. He said the thing with global governance organizations is they will start out seeking perfect justice and they will end up destroying civilization. That's the trajectory. And let me just give you one little, little sample. The UN is full right now. It's full of these global things. They have, you know, we're all worried about global warming. So there's got to be global solution and global carbon credit. They have millennium development goals for the globe, for everybody. It's all very grand. Well, they also have something called the, called the Global Compact. This was another Kofi Annan initiative. It actually operates effectively as a slush fund under the Secretary General where he can convene all the heads of Fortune 500 companies, uh, you know, big corporate interests from around the world, invite them to, as they did last year, a plush powwow in Geneva and get private pledges of money to the UN and they're invite this thing operates inside the secretariat in violation of many of the UN's own rules last time I researched and report, reported and wrote a story about it okay the global compact 
has 10 principles of good governance. It's my, I'm going to wrap it up with this. Um, they had nine when they began, all about transparency and all this, all these good things that we all subscribe to. They added a tenth sort of during the, as oil for food began to get big on the headlines. Uh, business should work against corruption in all its forms, including they added an anti-corruption thing. Um, they have a foundation, this global compact which invites companies around the world to sign on and endorse their principles and endorse the UN and become part of the UN Happy Global Compact Family for Good Governance. They have a foundation in the United States which invites your donations. Um, the foundation uh, resides, as far as I can track down, in a post office box in Grand Central Station. <laughs> and it has a website. You can Google it up. If you go into the UN procurement website, you'll see a global compact link there. If you click on that, you get to the global compact with its principles. This is just emblematic, okay? This is classic of virtually any rabbit hole you go down at the UN. They have a link on the website for this Global Compact Foundation, which I've been watching for the past year and a half. It says financial information. This is the UN's big transparency promoting initiative. Financial information. And it says that financial information will be posted on this site uh, as available, routinely updated. Here's the page. I don't know if you can see this. There's been nothing on it since I began watching it in early 2007. Nothing. That's, and that is accountability at the UN. It's there talking on and on, exerting away, and when you actually go looking for where are they themselves in responsibility, that's the answer. Um, it would be a, to continue along the line we are going with them is a very bad idea. Uh, creative ways of doing something about that would be a very good idea. It's difficult. There are huge vested interests. Thank you. Thank you very much to Claudia and all of our panelists. Uh, the goal of Global Governance Watch is to take a look at all these issues and to uh, not only provide foundational content, but also to look at the current developments in these areas. What I'd like to do at this time, uh, someone has a microphone, and uh, if you would please direct your questions to any of our panelists uh, on any of the things that they talked about or any other questions that you have regarding Global Governance Watch or the global governance issue, uh, we welcome them. Yes, Frank Fletcher, STS Group. Uh, will Global Governance Watch look at the issue of the law of the sea and its implications for national sovereignty? Uh, sure, I can feel that answer. Uh, yes, it will. In fact, uh, there's a section on the law of the sea under the national security pillar. Uh, so if you head to the website, www.globalgovernancewatch.org, uh, click on the national security portion of it, and you'll see a section on the law of the sea. Uh, John Fonte, the Hudson Institute. This is for uh, Mr. Cass. Uh, Jeremy Rabkin, uh, probably no constitutional uh, law professor at uh, George Mason University, uh, is worried about the AB, the appellate body of the WTO, uh, as potentially developing uh, independent case law that could override uh, uh, the decision-making process of um, 
elected parliaments, Congress, U.S. Congress or European parliaments or democratic parliamentary state. I was wondering if you agreed with um, Professor Rapkin or you had a different take on this, if you could explain it, please. Thank you. Well, anytime you set up a body that uh, is reviewing decisions of others and explicating the rules, you have an opportunity for the rules to depart from the underlying text. The, the rule, as a, not only a professor of international law, but of constitutional law, uh, the rule here for years was if you couldn't get something in the text, get it in the history, and if you can't get it in the history, get it in the courts. Uh, you have the same sort of risk with the decision-making at the WTO. So far, however, I don't think we have seen that. The bigger risk, I think, at the WTO isn't that the decisions are going to go off because, by and large, you have a series of decisions. You have arbitral decisions. You have review of panel decisions. So far, those decisions have seemed to track pretty closely the text of the WTO. The bigger uh, risk is that you have declarations, you have ministerial declarations, you have other groups that are not formally uh, empowered to alter texts that are making declarations at odds with the underlying text. And you see this, uh, let me go back to the patent issue. There are some declarations that have been adopted during the Doha round negotiations that don't have binding effect but you have groups that are uh, NGOs that are trying to promote these outcomes, that are trying to persuade people that these do have binding effect, and if they persuade enough people, at some point you run that risk. So I, I, I don't, at this point, have Jeremy's level of concern, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. Indur Goklani, Department of the Interior. Uh, since the organization doesn't seem to be very accountable to anybody, perhaps the next best thing is to have a lot of sunshine. And I was wondering if the Global Governance Watch might not uh, set up a corruption corner, which it can populate with whatever knowledge you are privy to regarding uh, corruption in the United Nations, and essentially just keep beating them on that. Uh, it might be useful to have something like that. Perhaps that might shame some governments into saying that, hey, we are going to reduce our funding for this piece of the pie or what have you, and, uh, you know, which is essentially what uh, uh, will eventually be useful. But and I do agree with you. I think a lot of these schemes that I see out there for the, uh, for these, uh, for the United Nations, essentially, things like... Uh, clean development mechanism, and so on and so forth. I see these as actually uh, backdoor approaches to get a regular source of funding without having to get them from anybody in particular. And uh, I, I, I think that is something that really ought to be uh, highlighted. And I, I have to believe that with the amount of money that could come sloshing in with the, CDM, with the clean development mechanism, there are plenty of opportunities for corruption. And I'd, I suspect, given the opportunity, uh, they, they will indeed, somebody will indeed want to uh, make the most of that. A quick word here. Uh, it's a very good idea. I, I'm not working on Global Governance Watch, but that would, that would be a, 
a wonderful place to put those, to put some things like this. Um, on corruption, and you're quite right, these great flows of money are just, it's already happened. One of the big scandals we just saw over the past year and a half was with the UN Development Program, which is their biggest, their flagship agency. The guy who runs that is number three man at the UN. And they were involved in, they, a Senate investigation has just disclosed to us in January, following many reports in the press, they were involved in the movement of money, both illicit money to the government of North Korea and effectively laundering money out to front companies for North Korean weapons programs in Macau, as well as the still unexplained use of a UNDP-related account to launder money from of North Korea to their embassies in places like London and New York. If anybody can explain what happened, please. But... The difficulty with all this is that people just start to lose track. You can endlessly enumerate UN scandals. And uh, it becomes, at this point, it's sort of what was the massive oil for food scandal. We now have sort of a thousand little, a thousand, not, not little, scandals. And people simply start to go numb. It's why I think somewhere in this debate it's just crucial to keep coming back to first principles why is it that this is not some unfortunate accident that these things happen at the U.N.? It is built into the design. It's the same way when Gorbachev was trying to clean up the Soviet Union. It was impossible. He was working with a system that generates dirt. And you actually need to ask what structures that are completely different, designed for this millennium, might promote some better cooperation internationally. Thank you. The Global Governance Watch website will be monitoring corruption in the U.N. and other international institutions to the extent that we will be reporting on all reports of the finding of corruption that uh, come from various sources, whether it be Claudia's fine work or internal reports, and that will be uh, most likely in the development pillar as they occur. That's where our foundational uh, topic uh, of uh, anti-corruption and corruption matters is addressed. We link to... Paul Volcker's report, we link to Wall Street Journal editorials on the subject. Uh, anything that comes along shining the, you know, the spotlight on corruption within any international institution, we will have on our website. We won't, you know, we won't be out in the field looking for it, but when someone finds it, you'll see it on the website. Uh, Joseph has a comment about that question, though. Yeah, I wanted to uh, use uh, Claudia's answer and the question as a springboard for something I should have said earlier. Uh, I'm the only government uh, representative. I'm the only person here who's currently working for the government, I think, on the panel. And I should have observed that uh, uh, my presence here doesn't imply that the State Department endorses or opposes any particular project or website. I do, however, have a recommendation, uh, also uh, borrowing from, uh, from uh, Claudia's remarks earlier, that the, the, if this is the future of global governance, and she stated some conditions under which it might make sense. I think possibly as the website and the project expands, uh, you could have as one of your pillars Plan Neptune. Uh, right, so that, so that there would be competition, there would be alternatives to global governance. Of course, we would have to work on climate change uh, before that could be achieved. Just as a point of reference, and uh, on the uh, within the development pillar of Global Governance Watch, there is already foundational content uh, linking to 
uh, some of the reports on the World, World Bank corruption scandals, uh, and we will continually update that. Uh, it's in a, what we call our good governance section. John Wallstead, a senior fellow at Discovery Institute. A couple of suggestions you might consider for the panel's comment. One is that the G7 nations fund somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of the United Nations operations. I'm excluding Russia from that for obvious reasons from G8. And it would seem that there would be some opportunities for leverage there. The other is a suggestion that John Bolton had in his book, which is that the organizations that work best in the United Nations, like the World Health Organization and stuff, are voluntarily funded. And uh, if the entire United Nations were funded that way, the same opportunities for leverage might uh, curb a great deal of mischief. John, thank you. I have huge respect for Ambassador Bolton, and I, I, to disagree with him on anything is a terrifying thought from this platform, especially. But with respect to Ambassador Bolton, I would suggest considering that most of what the UN does now is voluntarily funded. Most of the UNDP, in fact, the UNDP is voluntary funding. Uh, most of what everyone contributes to it is voluntary. The core budget, the assessed dues that go to the UN are two point, roughly $2 billion per year. That's one-tenth of the estimated system-wide budget. And the problem is that the UN, it's not just a matter of tax money is perforce turned over. It's that the UN is a machine. It's sort of like you can go to the mafia and they'll do things for you. And if you want to, if you're an, an official in a corrupt country who wants to launder money back to your own family through a U.N. program, the U.N. has many ways that it will help you do that. That's exactly the kind of thing I just described with North Korea. So it's not just a matter of if we give dues or don't. It's a matter of some of these voluntary contributions come from places which are very happy to use the U.N. as a laundromat for their money. It has diplomatic immunity across borders. It answers effectively to almost no jurisdictions. Just keep it out of the Southern District. And uh, that's the much bigger problem. This is machine has been created that can be used by the least scrupulous. This Durban II conference that we're seeing right now where Right now, there's a fight over should this be funded out of the core budget. This is this anti-Israel, anti-U.S., anti-Western values conference with Libya chairing the preparatory committee in Iran and Pakistan and Cuba, working on it, meeting next week in Geneva. But um, the problem there is even if you got voluntary funding for this thing, it still proceeds under the U.N. logo with U.N. immunity and gets this whole giant platform it wouldn't otherwise have. So I would suggest... I think that's possibly the only thing in creation on which I disagree with John Bolton, but please consider it seriously. Thank you. Thank you. Carl Close, the Independent Institute. Will Global Governance Watch be monitoring the impact of Western environmental groups on the sovereignty of developing nations? Yes, that will be in our... Uh, Global regulation uh, right now, you want to come up and show them how that would be done?
looks at all that. We, uh, this is the climate change regulation, which talks not only about whatever uh, treaties uh, might apply or, or declarations or whatever outcomes uh, there are from UN conferences on, on climate change. It also takes a look at uh, uh, contrary studies that are being done. Uh, it was at George Mason uh, University. There was a recent uh, uh, report done disputing some of the evidence contained in the uh, uh, reports that were used to uh, uh, consider at the, at the Bali meeting. Uh, so uh, absolutely, uh, we will be looking at uh, those issues. We have time for one more question in the back, please. Yeah, uh, Chuck Woolery, uh, former chair of the United Nations Association Council of Organizations, and I agree with much of what you said about the UN being designed not to work. In fact, when it, in its original creation, there was supposed to be, have been a people's assembly, which would have given the people a voice within the UN. Uh, a lot of complaints I hear about the UN is that it's not democratic, and I agree completely. But what I'm frustrated by is any attempt to democratize the U.N. is, is frustrated or, or halted. Uh, for example, the Security Council has no accountability. And with the United States being on that Security Council with no electable, no, no, no fun, there's no accountability there. And so how do, you, how do you address that problem where you claim there's no democratization, but when you want to democratize it, there is no uh, willingness to do that? Joseph, you want to take that question? Well, uh, you're talking about the only part of the United Nations that sort of does work. Uh, there are generally two problems with governance in the United Nations. Uh, first, the substance, and second, the process. Uh, at the, the, well, you can certainly abstractly criticize uh, the Security Council, and the United States is open to reform of the Security Council as part of a broader reform of the United Nations. And we have indeed endorsed the expansion of the permanent five by one member, at least one member, Japan, uh, because we think you know, Japan is the second largest contributor to the United Nations system. If there's going to be a Security Council with five members or, or some number of members who have a veto, we believe Japan uh, ought to be one of those. Uh, but but when you look empirically, you know, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said about the common law, the life of the law has not been logic, it's been history. And when you look empirically at what works in the United Nations, uh, the Security Council works a lot better than anything else, and it works because of the veto. And it's frustrating to us sometimes. We, we proposed a resolution on Burma, which we thought was very important, which had a lot of support. But there were two vetoes. We had nine votes. We had the, the, the majority, the solid majority of the Security Council, but China vetoed and, and Russia vetoed. So the, the, the veto doesn't always work in our favor for the outcomes that we want. But in general, you can't get anything through the Security Council uh, that doesn't uh, really have a, a consensus. The five permanent members are different enough uh, that, that I think that's a true statement. And the Security Council therefore limits itself to those situations that are much more than any other, much more than any other uh, uh, UN entity that are really within its charter. So while we're open to United uh, Nations reform, and we should be, uh, it would be tragic to reform first and maybe only uh, the part that works best. 
That's all the time that we have today for questions. We've sorry for the uh, short time that we have. I, I do want to, uh, uh, in conclusion, unless uh, you have some remarks, David, that you'd like to make. In conclusion, I would like to thank our panelists, all three of whom I think did a magnificent job. I would also like to thank, uh, not by name because there would be too many of uh, you in the audience, but I do see some of our dear friends who have been working on these issues of uh, international law and global governance for many, many years. And we thank you for that work, and we also look forward to your appreciation and uh, consideration and revision and comment on our website, globalgovernancewatch.org. Uh, Along the way, we look at you as our partners as much as our, our two formal partners in this project and hope to hear from you very soon, both David Payton and, uh, and Alyssa Lutjohn. Thank you very much.